You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. Hello, it's the Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration. I'm Adam Anz. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, it's June, which means it's Pride Month. Yay! It's queer 4th of July and Christmas and Hanukkah and Valentine's Day and Halloween all rolled into one. And to celebrate... I am going to be focusing primarily on conversations with queer artists and entertainers throughout the month. Sounds very exciting, doesn't it? Well, that is because it is. So let's not fuck around, okay? Let the celebrations commence. I'm kicking things off this week by chatting with Brooklyn-based band The FMs about their shared spark of inspiration, Nine Inch Nails' sprawling third studio album, The Fragile. It is a really lovely chat. Um, we touched on a lot of issues that I think are really important in Pride Month, self-discovery and acceptance, first love, finding your community and your chosen family, and, of course, high school drama, which is about as queer as it gets. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, we also talk a lot about the music itself and the album's tumultuous gestation period. So, let's get into it. Um, quick FM's facts. The FM's are a bastion of queer music formed in 2017 by Matt Namer and Frankie Rex, who met in high school in New York City. The Brooklyn-bred band exudes subversion with style and, of course, sex. Rethinking long-standing societal programming and the rebellion of simply being one's authentic self all through their politically charged pop missives. Quick facts about The Fragile. The Fragile is the third studio album by American industrial rock band Nine Inch Nails, released as a double album on September 21st, 1999. Looking to depart from the distorted production of their previous record, The Downward Spiral, the band featured elements of ambient and electronic music alongside the band's traditional industrial rock sound. Ah, uh, do you feel informed? Great. Then let's get on with it. Here comes my chat with the FMs about The Fragile. Uh, I guess, you know, the standard question is, where did you first hear this album? But that may have, uh, I'm assuming it wasn't like 
you happened to both be together when you first heard this album. So um, you have a common link for, for it. So how we actually met uh, is related to this album. Oh. So that's interesting. <laughs> well, do tell. <laughs> you want to tell your story of how you first heard this sure. album first? Okay. okay. So um, <laughs> in a junior high school, I met uh, our common link. This person, we'll call them Special K, because okay. we don't want to give too much away. But um, uh, her and I, we had very similar taste in bands and music. And one of the bands, of course, was Nine Inch Nails. And the year prior, The Fragile came out. So we were just going into it, like just listening to it over and over again. And just, it just meant so much. All the different songs, it, it was just crazy. Well, it's kind of like a uh, important, I guess, time in our lives, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways. So there's like a lot of emotions and yeah. things that we think about. And, and, you know, this was kind of a long time ago for us, but it, it's still stuff that I guess we think about a lot. So it's oh, yeah. really interesting to rethink about this person was both of our first ever girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like interesting. And and they, they introduced both of us to this album. Um, but like, a, but I guess like a couple of years apart. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess if you want, you can like, kind of like go a little bit into, into more about how it like went for you. And I'll kind of just like talk a little bit about what my introduction to it was. Yeah. Well, at that time, that's when yeah. I was first starting to like write my own music, write lyrics. So it definitely made a huge impact on that. Right. Uh, just mm-hmm. being super like introspective and being okay with expressing the darker parts about yourself, you mm-hmm. know, showing that anger and emotion and so many songs on that album just really I could relate to and just go into my place, listen to it and feel not so alone. And having people to also uh, feel that as well was just like amazing because I didn't really have that growing up, you know. So during that period of time, that's when I was starting to make actual like connections with people, friendships through through music. And this mm-hmm. album definitely a pinnacle for, for that time. Yeah. That's amazing. And like, I think the thing that really strikes me about this album in particular, but about Nine Inch Nails in general is like having this kind of industrial, gothy, whatever uh, sensibility, a tinge to it, but with other industrial music, with other uh, stuff that's like more firmly kind of planted in that genre, the emotional palette is quite narrow. And it's like, you know, full aggressive anger or just, you know, the, the noise is a lot more intense and it's like, that's not a criticism. It's just like, that's what you get from uh, a a lot of industrial music. And it's like Trent Reznor has taken that template and broadened the emotional palette and made it so that it's like, there are peaks and troughs. There's still anger and upset. And, you know, he's talking about really difficult issues, but also allowing room for other types of emotions to drift in as well. So it seems like something that would be, you know, especially at a kind of formative time in your life when you're just starting to find your people, um, having something like this that you can connect with them on is really uh, amazing. Yeah, I think it's it's probably one of the longest albums that, I mean, Nine Inch Nails is like, 30 i don't know what 30 40 years worth of like albums now at this point right and out of all the stuff that they've ever put out it's probably like one of the longest albums it's a double album i think it's like two hours long 
you know, yeah. and um, and very dynamic, right? There's songs that are super heavy and fast and industrial on it and things that are like quiet, somber piano pieces that are just very sad and quiet. And, you know, so there's a very huge, like, like you're saying, like a huge dynamic range, like both emotionally and sonically on this album. And I think probably if I had to guess, and, you know, I don't know if there's like an interview about this anywhere, but I would almost guess that just the amount of time they spent on this album, that he may have like probably spent long, a longer amount of time working on this album than he had on any other album that they, they ever worked on. Yeah. And I think part of that is probably why, you know, and also what's kind of interesting about it too. And, and I'd love to like get into this a little bit more with you on this, on this podcast, but I think this was like a, a particularly interesting time in his life. And by interesting, I also mean like it was a really dark time in his life. Right. And you know, I think he was like really suffering a lot during this time and dealing with a lot of drug addiction um, and had like a pretty chaotic process, I think, throughout mm-hmm. this album. You know, it wasn't, wasn't a very linear thing, I think, you know, where like he probably in later years was like, yep, I'm going to make an album. I know how to do this. going to go in. I have like a concept, going to spend like a certain amount of time working on this album and then, you know, banging out like in a certain amount of time you know, the, the process, at least the way I imagine it was probably crisscrossing, going back and forth, you know, a, a, bit, a bit of a struggle, you know, to, to end up at the end of this, you know, work. Right. And I think in addition to all of this personal stuff, like, you know, his, his grandmother who raised him died while he was making this album, as you said, struggling with drug and alcohol, uh, you know, abuse and all of that for, for any normal person, if you're, you know, the average person dealing with those kinds of things, it's traumatic and it's, it's hard to do your best work when you're dealing with those kinds of things. But adding on top of that, being one of the biggest rock stars in the world, having come off the back of the downward spiral, which was this monster hit. And, you know, really quickly, I I know this is like not the best comparison because they're very different bands, but in a way it kind of reminds me of the trajectory for Smashing Pumpkins, where it's like, you know, a first album that was well-received, but not huge. And then another album that just absolutely destroys the entire planet and just launching a band from something that's like not quite obscurity but just barely breaking through to like everywhere and having this like five five or six year gap in between the downward spiral and the fragile and the amount of stress you know interviews when he talks about it he's just kind of like you know he moved into the Manson house and stuff and like had all these experiences making the downward spiral and had this gigantic monster hit. And then he doesn't talk about it as like pressure. It's just like not really being able to find the shape of it and just, you know, having this, the record company, his fans give really wanting to have this album released and just like having the combination of all the personal stuff that he was dealing with and just wanting to make the best album that he could, meaning that it took so much time. And that's another comparison with Smashing Pumpkins, I guess, because, you know, putting out this gigantic double album as the follow-up to this, you know, the the album that everyone first really paid attention to them for. Yeah. And I, I, I guess like as an artist, I can really appreciate that direction too, you know, because like he didn't just 
you know, go this route of like, yeah, I had this big hit and anything I put out now, you know, I just want to also like sell a lot of records with this next thing. Like it's a very, very ambitious record, you know, the fragile. I mean, it is so outrageous the production on it i mean just so much time went into every little thing you know there's millions of tracks maybe not millions that's a bit of an exaggeration but like (laughs) maybe not (laughs) so many things that they they put into it you know like so many layers of things they recorded for it that yeah it's and it clearly like yes there's a couple of singles on it and stuff here and there but they're not you can really tell even the singles on it sometimes were like not really that intended to be singles you know some of them are like 6 minutes long and things like that it wasn't yeah. like really meant to just be this commercial follow up sure you know and i i can really uh i can really uh, admire that i suppose yeah and i guess that there is a a bit of a, a more of a homogenous sound from the downward spiral that it was like an album that felt like a cohesive whole that was like there was a sound to that album whereas with this album it's like as you said all different kinds of sounds coming from all different places you can really hear that he's about to become an oscar winning uh um, (laughs) uh, you know uh, he's going to score film soundtracks because it has that expansive cinematic stuff, you know, in the, in the instrumental tracks and also just in tracks with, that have a long instrumental lead, really giving the music space to breathe, really allowing himself to, and, and I know it's not just him. I know it's, you know, there, there is a band there as well, but I think, you know, uh, because he is the one constant throughout the band's history, I kind of narrow it down. My, my focus remains on uh, Trent Reznor, but, um, yeah, just and all these influences, like, you know, industrial, like, you know, alternative people say a lot that it's like taking the sounds of, you know, David Bowie and kind of glam rock of the 70s and then layering on industrial techno, um, other kinds of electronic music. And then also just like a sweet acoustic, like, you know, melancholy. So all of these so varied. And I think that was probably the most surprising thing as a, a follow up is is that it wasn't just trying to repeat the success that they'd had it was like saying we're going to do something completely different and he actually has said in interviews like you know people are uh, or before the album came out saying like oh this is a pop album people are going to hate it and i don't think i wouldn't go that far but you know definitely <laughs> something completely different to what people had heard from them before yeah it almost seemed like he was saying that like tongue-in-cheek or something or <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> like yeah. read those interviews as well but yeah, <laughs> yeah. this thing with the album is that there's um different moods to it you could definitely like just sit there and be all somber but then there's some songs where you just groove in and you just can't help but dance to it as well which i feel like his later albums definitely spun from that period of time you know the uh, direction of which the music was going yeah and i think with something you know it is like just under an hour and 45 minutes of music and it's an investment if you're going to listen to that all the way through, you know, every time if you're going to put it on repeat, it's like, you know, some albums are 35 minutes long. So it's it is a, a substantial body of work. And I think, you know, a lot of people kind of curate playlists from it as well to dictate their moods in addition to just listening to it all the way through because you can do that. There's like kind of suites of songs that are not all collected together as suites on the album but you can kind of identify this you know the this the slower more kind of 
uh, expansive cinematic moments, the louder, dancier moments, and just being able to, you know, without sounding like too much of a dickhead, it's like this, you know, being taken on a journey by the band and, you know, really <laughs> living with them for an extended period of time that is, you know, it's it's rare to have a band release that much music at the same time. Yeah, it's very much like a concept album in a lot of ways. I, I don't know about like a super strong, like lyrical concept album throughout the whole thing. But, but musically speaking in the way the emotional journeys work, like the first time I ever heard it, you know, the opening track on the album is this uh, track somewhat damaged. And, you know, it's this very tension building track, you know, it, it's, it's actually one of 13 songs we were looking up that the CIA used to torture people with at Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> Which so wouldn't be torture I mean, for us if we were in that situation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's this like building tension kind of thing. It, it boxes you in and you're kind of like, oh, like what's happening here? Like, ugh. you know, it, it doesn't like really make you feel good when you're listening to that first song. Um, but it opens up into this track, The Day the World Went Away. And the first time I was listening to this album, I was in uh, my first girlfriend's Special K's basement, which, uh, you know, was kind of this place that we would go when we were like, you know, sophomores in high school. And it was this place we would go and do drugs. She had very lax parents and stuff like that. And, <laughs> and you know, we uh, I was listening to it with her and, you know, this this uh, this song came on and 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 it really when that second song came on you know it really opens up you know there are these huge guitars and this the the tempo like slows down and i really kind of felt like space time like opening up into this infinite expanse into the universe and um you know i, I really felt at that moment i think like from that moment this album had just really become you know my my favorite album i've never i've never um been hit by another piece of music in an emotional way as hard as I'd been hit by this album, you know, like after that moment. And and I think it has like a bit of a kind of, for lack of a better term, like a little bit of a sacred sort of place for me now. I don't just like throw it on randomly. Mm. Um, when I, when I want to listen to it, I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I want to be able to like listen to this album, like when I'm going to listen to it. I don't want to just like be like chopping carrots while I'm listening to it or something. <laughs> you know? like, so um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's, uh, it's interesting because, you know, you were talking about, I think that song was actually about his grandmother dying. And it's interesting how, you know, that that song to me was the one that really first hooked me for this album and um, felt like it was this song that was really this interesting thing that represented this kind of turning point in my life. You know, at that time, I guess high school is a time when we're kind of all becoming ourselves in a lot of different ways. And sophomore year of high school for me was the year that I met my musical partner in life, Frankie, and was also like the year that um, I was in high school at the time at this like high school called Stuyvesant High School in New York City, which was like a um, school that was supposed to be for like, you know, it's like a magnet school. You take this like test to get into it and it's like hard to get into and blah, blah, blah. But um, it was also like a couple blocks away from the World Trade Center and that that bombing took place that year. So it was kind of like a very... Uh, eventful year, I suppose you could say for, for us, um, you know, I like watched, <laughs> watched that whole thing like happen that year from like my French class window and stuff. And um, so, yeah, it just, um, 
all this stuff like kind of happened around the same time. And, um, you know, just, it was a, a very monumental moment for me hearing this album for the first time and a monumental time in my life. Um, I think part of what Nine Inch Nails like represented to me and part of what this time in my life represented to me, you know, I was kind of just around this time starting to feel like starting to learn that I kind of was this, as I was hitting puberty, this kind of like sexually, or I felt at the time, like a bit of a sexually deviant person, mm-hmm. you know, and I didn't really understand like what I was about or really understand like that, like anybody might want to like love me. So having like a first girlfriend that was like kind of accepting of my sexuality and finding this band Nine Inch Nails that, you know, felt accepting of my sexuality was like a really, all of it was a really big deal to me at the time. Yeah. And I think any adolescent can, can feel isolated, can feel, you know, it's a tumultuous time in anyone's life with hormones raging and trying to forge your own identity and all this stuff. But for queer people, it's, it's like that multiplied by a billion because the things that you see the majority of your peers experiencing and being allowed to experience and the freedom that they're granted is not necessarily granted to us. And so when uh, you have those times, you know, like high, high school, at least for the first couple of years, fucking sucked for me. And I just, you know, it was such a bad uh, time again, when you're trying to figure myself out and wanting to be able to just like, like I just said, have the freedom that my peers had to figure that out publicly and without having to worry about, you know, people being mean to me or whatever. And then, you know, I went to a performing arts high school and, and I found people who were like me and just be, you know, having that experience of settling in with peers who are, uh, you know, like-minded people, if they're not going through the same thing that you're going through, they're at least empathetic. And then also having these artistic touchstones, these connections, it's really important. It really like gives you this common ground. And like, you know, obviously it's worked out well for the two of you. (laughs) Um, I I have in my mind a kind of West Side Story uh, style knife fight over Special K. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm assuming it didn't get that. uh, that Oh, no, no, no. no. It was super civil at that time. It was just like, yeah, her and I, we were just like best friends at that time. And I was already dating somebody else by that time as well. (laughs) So funny enough, I mean, yeah, it kind of... Special K and I only, I think, ended up dating for like two months. It was this uh, Icarus type rise and fall, you know, like for, for me at the time. And, you know, I, I remember um, listening to that album with her, the, you know, at the start of that, towards the start of that relationship and getting introduced to it. And as I was uh, breaking up with her and feeling suicidal two months later, <laughs> I was listening to that album again. And, and then, um, you know, having a moment where I was feeling, you know, like a week later, kind of this calling to, you know, be like, you know what, I, I feel better about my life now. I am listening to that album again and deciding that I want to become a musician. And Frankie and I ended up being in each other's first ever band. And, uh, and Frankie then ended up like dating the guitarist of that band. So yeah. Kind of like, <laughs> yeah. I was playing drums or at least attempting to play drums back then, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It's also the the other story of adolescence is that constant, like, you know, mini relationships. Everybody kind of uh 
date each other trying to find you know yeah, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a little you know but whatever right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you live and you learn you know you got to try out new things exactly, exactly. yeah gotta <laughs> uh you know you want to test drive a few cars before you settle on the right one <laughs> um, uh, yeah but i i i think yeah all of the that that kind of time period as well when this album came out was like a very interesting time for music and what was happening to the charts and you know it was kind of the tail end of like the quote-unquote alternative music which is like what does that even mean um but right. uh i was reading an article about um this album today and and they were saying that it was like bands like you know limp biscuit were starting to be in the charts and like really famous and so thinking about that kind of musical landscape having something this introspective and emotional and nuanced being thrown into the same musical landscape as fucking nookie yeah um <laughs> uh and yeah it's it it's you know, it was it wasn't as instantly successful as the downward spiral, but I think over time it's become more appreciated and definitely has a special place in Nine Inch Nails fans' hearts. Like it's you know one of the the albums that people appreciate the most, if not you know their favorite. Everything went downhill after the Fragile. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I really I'm like just kidding. <laughs> I don't just mean for Nine Inch Nails. I mean for the music okay, as a that's whole. What you mean. <laughs> well, yeah, I agree with that statement. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like it was like the um, you know the 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 apex of like something that was happening. This sort of brilliance, this kind of like golden age of, of rock or music that was happening through the nineties, you know, uh, this kind of like excessive experimentation or, or something that was happening throughout the nineties. And it was kind of this bookend of that decade music history. I, I kind of always feel like after the year 2000, it, there was something like interesting about it, you know, because I almost feel like you can, you know, when you're listening to music before the year 2000, it's almost really easy to pinpoint like when something was created. Mm. And after the year 2000, it's like very difficult. Like I almost feel like I could more easily tell you if something was made in 1998 versus like 1996 yeah. versus like 2003 or like 2020. Yeah. You know, it's like weird like that, you know? Yeah. And I'm sure at least part of that has to do with the democratization of music making of music distribution of of all those things which has been you know for better or worse means that and music technology too yeah. absolutely that it's like people have access to technology in their homes that before it was like you'd have to have a studio you'd have to have a label behind you um and i think that's another interesting thing about the fragile is that it's like at that time uh and and maybe even now on a major label, having an album like this released, something that has taken, has such a long gestation period, has had so much money spent on it, and yeah. the luxury of having that much time and space, and also being able to put out this monster album, you have to have power to make that happen. And I think it was because he was at the top of the food chain um, in terms of what musicians were in in the world that he was able to to achieve this and i don't think that you know uh a minor act on uh was it interscope i think um i, I don't think that one of 
the label's smaller act necessarily would have been given the freedom to make something like this. So there's all these other you know power dynamics and you know what what technology you have that uh, what's accessible to you, all those kinds of things. And like you said, after the the turn of the century, it's like things really rapidly started changing in terms of how people could make music, where they could make music, and not necessarily having to ask permission to do it from anybody else. And even now, I think uh, people wouldn't spend so much time even making a double album. They would really just, you know, hone in on a couple of singles and put them out, you know, one after another, because... I feel like today some people they have a shorter attention span. Yeah. So we were really lucky that the fragile came out when it did because I don't think we would have that if it was going on today. I can't even remember the last time an artist that I really know and love has like put out a double album in the past like five years yeah. or something. Like, we're lucky if we get a full album. Nowadays. It's just like yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it seems to be like an art form that is like not quite as appreciated anymore. Right. You know, right. now that we're not like buying CDs anymore. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And, you know, it's the music becoming more available in every sense of the word, uh, word in terms of being able to produce it and in terms of being able to consume it, but also uh, devaluing music, making it so that people are just, as you said, have no attention span, maybe just listen to playlists, don't really ever listen to albums. So, so much of the work that goes into making an album gets lost because people hear the singles, if you're lucky, and then it's like really a hardcore fan base that's going to really want to engage with all of the music that that goes into an album so the desire and the the pressure from the label to put together an album to put together a, a longer body of work unless you know they can figure out some way that it makes sense from a marketing and sales standpoint that, that they're going to make money off of it. It's yeah, exactly like what you said. A few singles are, that are going to be the, the focus, the entire focus. Well, well, let me ask your, your listeners politely, you know, if you can help us get famous enough, <laughs> the FMs so that we can make a double album, we can have the freedom to make a double album. <laughs> yeah, we would love to be able to do that. You know, like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like we're quite there yet in our career to be able to just like go out and do that. <laughs> but you know, it's a, it's a good goal to have, uh, right? ha- have that in no, mind. I'm serious. Like I would, I would really love to be able to do that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I love, I love these double albums. Like I love like the wall, the wall is like one of Pink Floyd's, like the wall is like one of my favorite albums like it's so powerful i love like the movie that was like made and also Floyd, the, the wall smashing pumpkins melancholy yeah and melancholy you brought sadness. that up earlier that's a great album yeah Amazing. yeah yeah but billy um, corgan doing whatever he's doing these days you know aside <laughs> but uh you know <laughs> yeah but that was a great album <laughs> gotta end for that <laughs> so i'm gonna put this on everybody who's listening to this um and also you know, Spotify, all these people who have the power that they should only allow people to listen to full albums. And (laughs) really, if you want to play something, you can play it, but you have to sit down and really engage with it. I'm not sure how they can enforce that, but I'm just, I, I am the ideas, man. They can workshop it. So. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I, you know, yeah. When I listen to like Spotify, I love being able to listen to like a whole album. And, you know, I think that part of the, part of the way that their interface works can like encourage people to do that. 
and part of the way that it works can like discourage people from doing that, you know? And so, yeah, I think that part of it is on them, I guess, like a a platform like Spotify to be like, yeah, like when your users are interacting with your platform, are you like encouraging people to listen to albums or are you encouraging them to just cycle through like, you know, hundreds of different bands and different songs and whatever is like catching their attention from like each new three, four minute song, you know? And I think that's fine too. Like I don't always listen to albums too. You know, we're not like, yeah, I'm not like such a purist or yeah, like such a purist where we don't like, we'll like only listen to whole albums. But I think it is like a, it is a great art form. I, I really do like appreciate it as an art form, like listening to an album. Yeah, because they're curating this, you know, they're choosing the, um, you know, when, when the songs are supposed to play and like with the fragile, they'd go right into each other. You know, some, some songs are kind of like linked, like uh, the fragile and we're in this together now. They're like a couplet. Right, right, exactly. And if you're only listening to one or the other, you wouldn't know that. Yeah, how the songs like blend into one another is like such a integral part of the like listening experience. And the other thing too is like kind of going back to what we're talking about with musical history is that an album like really makes a statement about like where something sits in its place within like musical history. Right, yeah. And, you know, the artist's intention is that you... Listen, listen to, to the whole thing <laughs> you know you're, you're, uh, and also i will say sometimes on like the you know spotify playlists they'll throw like a an interlude in there it's like guys <laughs> no, no one is this is not the one thing that this artist wanted to single out from the entire album <laughs> like let's tweak the algorithm oh god um this was absolutely amazing you guys are fantastic uh i'm so excited to get a chance to talk about this album too so uh thank you so much for making time for me oh yeah yeah, thank you you. thank you for having us such a blast yeah definitely um well uh yeah thanks again all right thank you take care (laughs) (laughs) what a lovely pair aren't they Uh, Thanks again to Matt and Frankie for chatting with me. You can and should download and or stream the FM's music wherever you do those things. Uh, I will provide you a link in the show notes in case you are too lazy to type the band's name into Spotify yourself. Okay, Uh, quick inspirational work from me. I binged the Netflix series High on the Hog this week. It is inspired by the book of the same name by Jessica B. Harris, who features in the first episode. Um, It's a show that traces the culinary roots of African-American cuisine from pre-colonial African traditions to the present day. It is hosted by writer, producer, and magazine owner Stephen Satterfield. And um, it's a love letter to Black American culture and cuisine. It's a food documentary, but it's also very much about the history and legacy of slavery in America. And it is so incredibly moving and informative, and I just can't recommend it highly enough. Um, My only advice would be that you shouldn't make the same mistake I did in watching it hungry because it is a nonstop barrage of delicious looking food. So uh, check that out. And that is really it for this week. As always, please tell your friends about this show. Word of mouth is one of the most effective ways of reaching new podcast listeners. Uh, And you can also give the show a boost by rating and reviewing it. But um, only do that if you like the show, please. Save your bad reviews for a secret moment by yourself just before bed when you can shout it into your pillow. Uh, Other than that, have fun, have a safe and prosperous week, eat your vegetables, and until next time... 
Bye. Greetings from Chromatica, home of Lady Gaga, liberator of kindness punks, mother of little monsters, tricon of the ages. We are her best fans with a mission to create a podcast celebrating our hero. Broadcasting straight from Chromatica. This podcast is about Lady Gaga for Lady Gaga. But anyone can listen. It doesn't matter if you love him or capital H-I-M. Prove your stupid love. Ace the art pop quiz. Put your paws up. And download the Chromaticast wherever you get your podcasts. Join us every other Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific for our live tapings at twitch.tv slash apocalypse podcast network. Thanks for listening to the Apocalypse Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, go to ApocalypsePodcastNetwork.com. And remember, every time you support one of our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast you just heard. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.